But local democracy is this wild place. And it can be funny, it can be frustrating, it can be really interesting. And also, it's a place where a small but determined group of people can make a huge difference. And that's simply not as true at the, at the federal level. The number of people who pay attention really intensely to local politics is so small that if you become one of them, people basically have to listen. Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm your host, Jenna Spinelli. And if I had to create a subtitle for this week's episode, it would be Just Trust Me. This conversation is about housing and housing policy, which is not the sexiest topic and might not be the most obvious connection to democracy. But I think, as you'll hear, there are some very interesting and very relevant and timely connections to be made. Our guest is Connor Doherty, who covers housing for the New York Times and is the author of the book Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Connor Doherty, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for having me. Housing is perhaps not as direct of a tie to uh, to democracy in some folks' minds as, say, voting or protesting or things like that. But uh, democracy definitely is a a theme running through your book, Golden Gates. What do you see as as those as the, the connection between housing and democracy or, you know, what were some of those threads going through your mind as as you were working on the book? Well, obviously, ownership of land, which for most people is now ownership of housing, uh, has a long history in our democracy and uh, and has always been tied up with your right to vote and your right to participate in the democracy. So I think people should make that tie historically and uh, you know explicitly. Uh, but also today, we know that homeowners vote in much greater numbers. Uh, than renters and in certain suburbs and whatnot, they they are pretty much everything. Single family homeowners are you know, basically the main constituency. They, the, in some suburban governments, if you ask yourself what that government does, essentially their role is to make single family homeowners happy about the price of their homes and what they're getting in terms of public schools and stuff for the taxes on their homes. You are more paid attention to in the democracy, and you can know that your interests will be elevated amongst those of others. Uh, And so I guess the book is sort of trying to ask what happens when that breaks down and lots of people have no hope of joining that class, if you will, and that the people who, and that this starts expanding to a much larger group of people, meaning even middle-income young professionals in many places have zero hope of buying a home. What happens then and what types of new constituencies are created when that happens? And I think the book basically just looks at that. It, 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 it Mainly the book looks at this kind of, I mean, it looks at a lot of things, right? But I'd say the main narrative through line is kind of lower income renters who have always been left out of the democracy and have always had a hard time with housing. And then this newer, younger, more emergent professional class that which are called YIMBYs, standing for yes in my backyard, which is 
they, they came up with this acronym sort of in opposition to so-called NIMBYs, which are stereotyped as or caricaturized as uh, single family homeowners that don't want anything in their backyard. So NIMBY stands for not in my backyard and YIMBY stands for yes in my backyard. And, and these two groups of kind of, for lack of a better term, non-landed, landless people are, are trying to create a new constituency, a new common cause uh, that will make their housing situation more secure, whether it's through ownership or uh, things like rent control that, that give renters more security. And of course, race and class and income and all these things overlie these constituencies and in, in, in housing politics generally and watching them in real time kind of try to work this out and try to create this new constituency to sort of challenge the entrenched uh, homeowner constituency is a huge is 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 what the book is about it's about watching people try to create a new a new kind of democracy around people who don't own homes and aren't on these stereotypical people but but also showing how impossible how difficult it is to create that just for all the obvious reasons that it's hard to create groups of shared interests because they have so many other things that they conflict over. But, you know, thinking about what, what you were saying about the, the value that democracy and that society places on people who have homes or have land versus those who don't. I mean, do the, the people in the, the, the kind of Yimbies, so to speak, do they think of this kind of fight or this this struggle on on those terms or is it more granular of their they're they're really focused on the kind of personal or the you know individual needs of like I need a place to live for my family versus the larger like societal kind of issues or concerns just to back up for a moment the the yimby platform if you will is let's build more housing more of every kind of housing. They, they advocate for affordable housing that they'll probably never live in, uh, but also market rate housing that um, might be outside of their price range or might be in their price range. And the theory behind this is that if we have more housing, housing will be more plentiful. People will have more options. The cost will eventually go down or at least not go up as fast and that this will be good for everyone. Um, the except for people who are worried about their views <laughs> and mm-hmm. why they call themselves Yimbies to, mm-hmm. to be pretty squarely in opposition to the so-called NIMBYs. Mm-hmm. And I, but I, and I, I think that platform, like I said, is a pretty broad platform and it's a, a platform that has economics and long time horizons assumed in it. You know, you, you're not going to build your way out of a housing mess tomorrow or the next day. And so I think that I don't think anybody in that group has any illusions that if some buildings built tomorrow, it's going to benefit them tomorrow. So, right. uh, yeah. And and by the way, I will also say, just backing up for a moment, there's an economist at uh, Dartmouth, famous, you know, as housing <laughs> politics goes, <laughs> named William Fischel, who wrote a whole book called uh, Rise of the Home Voter. Or I think that's what it's called. But home voter is his. A, a phrase or a word he has coined. And he uses this, this phrase to sort of talk about how many homeowners, single family homeowners in particular in suburbs have become what he calls home voters, which is that their primary role in what and how they, what they vote for and who they support is inextricably tied to their thought about their home value 
uh, and what they're getting for the taxes that are assessed on their home value. And so, again, in, in his mind, just to draw this, you know, answer your first question even more explicitly, uh, in his mind, this is democracy, that that home voters, that's their issue. That's what they do. That's 90% of what they care about. Right. Yeah. And this this brings up something else that I, I thought was so interesting reading your book. You know, we have certainly had guests on this show before, or if you read other books about how to save democracy or how to fix our broken system and fix polarization and all of these things, one of the, the things that comes up most often is, well, get involved at the local level. It's as if it's this kind of Shangri-La like place where, you know, there's no polarization, there's no influence of, of money, or it's just this place where people can come together and build the kind of community that they want to build. And I think, you know, your your book and, and the you know, people like Sonia whose whose story you tell really illustrate that it's those those issues exist on the local level too. They they might look a little bit different, but they're definitely still there. So um, maybe as a, as, as a way to, to get into this, can you just tell us a little bit of Sonia's story and, and how she tries to, to navigate, you know, this, this world of, of local government? Yeah. So I'm happy you said that because I think at some level, the, what I really want this book to be is kind of um, a celebration of people who show up, people who engage in their democracy. And a lot of times they're they're fighting with each other. Your, your statement that there's no polarization or money influence, uh, I've, <laughs> there's lots of polarization, possibly more polarization than at the at the national level. And there's, you know, rel- there, money plays a role in this. I mean, obviously the, the, the number of zeros is lower, but a well-funded candidate generally will do better than a less well-funded candidate. That is true at the city level as well. It's probably not true at the like rinky-dink, like suburban school board level because you you really can go knock on every door. But once you get beyond a couple thousand people, money starts to play a role. Um, so I think the local level is really important. Uh, and I think this book is a celebration of it. So just to respond to that. Um, there's a woman, that, and, and, and also, and this will be my intro to Sonia, local government sounds to many of us like this kind of boring thing. You know, we, we get very interested in, in federal politics. Um, to some extent, we get caught up in the entertainment value of it. We never admit that, but it's true. Federal policies rarely touch our lives as immediately as local policies do, but of course, we don't we, we still don't pay attention to local politics the way we do federal politics. But local democracy is this wild place. And it can be funny, it can be frustrating, it can be really interesting. And also, it's a place where a small but determined group of people can make a huge difference. And that's simply not as true at the at the federal level. To get involved with federal politics, you have to, I don't know, vote for your Congress people, start some kind of advocacy group, Maybe you get a meeting with some congressperson one day, but unless you're some gigantic uh, entity uh, with you know, massive organizing power or just massive amounts of money, you're not getting bills drafted um, you know, in Washington for yourself, right? But, but at the local level, you can you, all you got to do is the number of people who pay attention really intensely to local politics is so small that 
if you become one of them, people basically have to listen to you. If you have the if you have the the time, it seems like more so than money. And I, I and I think Sonia's story uh, yes, is, is is you know, definitely uh, indicative of that. Yeah. So Sonia Trouss is this woman who I met. So um, I for years I had been fascinated with what is called this NIMBY problem, right? Which is this idea economists have for forty years been talking about how local government seems to be as big of a problem creating the affordable housing program in America, actually a bigger problem than the federal government. And economists have talked about this for years. There've been multiple books written about this. And what was fascinating to me as a reporter is like, okay, we know the lay of the land. It seems like there's something like consensus around what the problem is. Why is nothing changing? If this is what the smart people uh, all agree in a pretty bipartisan fashion, that is the quote unquote right things to do. Why is none of that happening? Right. And, and I was fascinated with that question. And of course the, the, as a, as a storyteller, as a writer, your natural uh, inclination is to go looking for someone who's trying to make it happen and show the difficulties, you know, show their journey. Right. So I met this woman, Sonia Trous one day, she's quite a character. And she had started showing up to San Francisco Board of Supervisors meetings. San Francisco does not have a city council. Um, and it's just saying you have uh, you need to build more housing, kind of that Yimby platform I laid out. You need to build more of every kind of housing and I'm for everything. So she would show up to these meetings where development projects were being proposed and she would just get up to the microphone and say, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of this. And then would give these two minute speeches because you only get two minutes for public comment uh, about why she thought you know, why she thought that was a good idea and then her broader platform. And she started calling herself the president of the Bay Area Renters Federation or BARF. And this was a uh, SF BARF. And this was obviously a ploy to get attention. And it worked. Suddenly little local newspapers were writing um, stories about the crazy person from BARF. Um, Sonia is a, a, a very bombastic character in real life. She's very outspoken. Um, the first time I met her, she showed up in a, a Crown Victoria, an old Crown Victoria, you know, the old cop car that was orange and covered in glitter. And uh, she's got this very distinct fashion sense, uh, big on neon and stuff like that. And she will give these speeches at at board of super at city council meetings all around the Bay Area, where she would you know, uh, really tar nimbies and call people selfish. You're a selfish hoarder, you know, somebody who showed up to a to a meeting uh, and would, you know, complain about their view. She would call them like a selfish hoarder. She, you know, she's very outspoken, very caustic, and she got a lot of attention. But I think a lot of people just wanted to hear, you know, the Bay Area oftentimes sits there and, and this is true of a lot of places, but the Bay Area became uh, my little prism. They want to think they're so progressives and yet their housing policies have the exact opposite effect. And this is, you know, demonstrated if you're if you're protecting some rich person's view under the guise of environmentalism and you know the result is a ton of homelessness. What are you really accomplishing? And she just absolutely called called that out. And I think a lot of people were waiting for someone to screen. You know, the the the, the public discourse had been so respectable uh, that it almost became inept and and there was so much inaction. And I, anyway, so a bunch of tech people, notably Jeremy Stoppelman, who's the co-founder and CEO of Yelp, obviously a very wealthy guy. He just thought Sonia sounded reasonable. And he was like, you know what? You're the only person making sense right now. And even though you're a little kooky, I'm going to give you some money. So he gave her some money combined with, she was a high school teacher at the time, combined with a few other things, 
she goes and basically quits her job and becomes this full-time activist. And uh, so she, now there's this um, whole organization, the Yimby World. And um, if you go to any city uh, that has a housing problem, there is chances are there's a Yimby, a fledgling or 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 more well-established Yimby group, sometimes using that name explicitly, sometimes just loosely connected with it in that in that world. Is the goal to try to, you know, use, obviously, she, not copy Sonia's playbook exactly, because it sounds like some of it was pretty idiosyncratic to San Francisco and or California, but to try to, you know, empower people who have the same ideas and the same values and the same goals, but maybe not quite the the time and the the energy that Sonia had to really get everything going from from the ground up? I think of our housing problem as a national local problem, right? Like it's a it's a problem of local government that exists everywhere. So it's inherently a local problem, but you see the same things everywhere. You see th- most cities, even large cities, have about three quarters of their landmass dedicated to single family homes and those neighborhoods are functionally off limits. That's true everywhere. You see uh, in suburbs, people fighting to keep affordable and subsidized housing out of their, uh, and, and even just explicitly keeping apartments out of their housing, you see that everywhere. You see this term NIMBY is a national term. Uh, and so while Sonia's journey and her, while her personality is idiosyncratic and the politics of San Francisco are tonally idiosyncratic, there was nothing particularly special about the Bay Area. It is a place with high inequality. That's a national problem. It's a place where you have an economy of kind of higher paid, for lack of a better term, knowledge workers, you know, people who work in finance or, um, you know, high education. Technology, education. yeah. Yeah, technology. And they, and they, and then, and then there's a very low paid service sector of people like nannies and house care workers, or sorry, you know, house cleaners and, and even gym people who teach gym classes, right? All these different things, right? And the the housing market is like not set up for both of those people. And so one group, you know, gets, one group is very housing insecure, the the service workers. And that is true. And, and this is an expression of our inequality. So that is true everywhere. And so, and, and yet the, the solutions will be inherently local, right? But the problems are identical problems. Every Every city has a NIMBY person uh, and every city has an affordable housing. Every city of size um, has an affordable housing organization that wants to get things built, but can't. Um, Increasingly, every city needs a homeless shelter and can't figure out where to put it. Right. I mean, you see the same patterns in all these different places. So even though I'm using San Francisco as a prism into this problem, I could have written this book anywhere. I just... um, let me give you an example. There's an, a, a neighborhood in San Francisco called Soma, which stands for South of Market. And it's this large neighborhood of um, new high rises, new condos, right? But it used to be like a warehouse district. You see that same pattern in so many cities. In New York, it's Hudson Yards. It's um, in Washington, it's the waterfront, Washington, D.C., that is. And, you know, so around the country in cities where you had some former industrial district that's um, been redeveloped a lot of times with these very high priced condos. Well, part of the reason they do that is they've designated their single family home neighborhoods as totally off limits. And so they focus all the new building in these uh, neighborhoods where basically nobody lived. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but 
But now, again, across the country, you see they're trying to look for things like accessory dwelling units, which are you know granny flats or sometimes mm-hmm. all their cottage houses, little house in the backyard. Every city is trying to pass something like that, and every city sees resistance. You see multiple cities in the Bay Area, in Washington, even in um, I think um, I forget, but somewhere in the Midwest, I think Wisconsin or something. There, but there's laws like this. Every Minneapolis became the first city in America to try to get rid of single-family zoning by allowing triplexes on single-family home lots. So not like giant apartment buildings, but just like three units. And um, and in every city, you see the same fight over that. So every even though the contours of these things are always so local, and everyone thinks their local process is so special, they're not because there's something inherently human about or something inherently American about these mm-hmm. low density neighborhoods mm-hmm. and the rules, local rules that have been erected to uh, create and preserve them um, are, even though they have their local um, flavors, they're basically the same thing because they, what do they do? They, they basically pass local laws to say, don't build over, you know, you can only have this many families living in the house or you can't build over this height or you can only have this kind of house or your house has to be set back from the curb by this number of feet or you have to this many acres of space on your lot right they are mm-hmm. all different but they're all the same because they're all basically saying i want to i want to raise the value of these homes by forcing them to acquire extra land and by um you know limiting who can live there and there's two groups that are really skeptical of real estate developers and one group are these single-family homeowners, whether they be suburban or or in in a city, is one of them. And they tend to be wealthier. They tend to be what we stereotypically think of as NIMBYs. Uh, phrases like neighborhood character and um, too much density. Yeah, sure. Classic right. okay. preservation, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Then there's a second group, which is uh, anti-gentrification groups who are worried that if you put that if new condos and and other type apartments come in, that they're going to lead to increased rents in the affordable apartments that are there, that it's going to be a signaling device that says their neighborhood is now the cool neighborhood and and lots of young professionals should move in. And so in every city I've talked to, the quote unquote YIMBY groups have been frustrated by a kind of explicit, in some cases, and implicit in all cases, alliance between these anti-gentrification groups and these suburban, um, you know, kind of NIMBYs. And the reason they're so frustrated by this is that in theory, these groups do not belong together. Yeah, they would have nothing else to agree on otherwise, if not for this one thing. Yes, exactly. But I think that, and there you go. So this is another way in which democracy is the root of all this, right? So if you are a local uh, anti-gentrification advocate, there's two things you're worried about. One is, you know, there is the, obviously what I just said, you're worried that your neighborhoods be gentrified. The second is when it's hard for a developer to get a permit uh, for a particular development, they have to go engage with the community. They have to go, they do these things called community benefit agreements where they sometimes support local nonprofits. Sometimes they will help with a public infrastructure project, you know, meaning, and by infrastructure, I mean like, you know, small helping with a park or building something that the larger community could could use. There are negotiations over how much public space will be in a new development, right? And the difficulty of getting a permit acts as a, you know, a sort of trigger where a developer has to go engage with the community that otherwise they might not be inclined to. 
right? And so many people in anti-gentrification um, groups and just neighborhood activists in general in, in, in more middle-class to lower income, predominantly non-white neighborhoods, they're like, look, if you take this away, if you make it super easy to build housing, um, th this developer might not want to engage with us like at all. And, you know, a lot of those groups don't have great political representation beyond, you know, one city council person or whatever. Um, and, and so they feel like their, their role in the democracy is pretty much the only, it's hanging by a thread and, and the only real opportunity they have to really truly exercise control over their neighborhood is this trigger, which is that they can make it difficult for someone to get a permit and in doing so make that person talk to them. Right. So losing that, that frail, you know, thing they even have, um, worries them. Right. And that's a, I, I, you, that's very easy to empathize with. Right. Um, but politically, when it comes to the question, how do you make it easier to build housing? Right. And it, you, know, you get down to the binary of a bill that puts them, you know, any bill that de facto makes it easier to build housing is, is going to take away that, that trigger I just talked about. And so mm -hmm. What are they going to do? They're going to do what anybody does in politics. They go looking for allies to help them defeat this thing that they're worried about. And lo and behold, it turns out suburban NIMBYs who are worried about making it easier to build housing for precisely the opposite reason. But again, we're now in the binary of a bill. They are very natural allies. Right. Yeah. And, and you just just saying about uh, volunteers to to push legislation um, reminded me of the, the role that ballot measures play in all this. We haven't really touched on this at all either. I mean, this is this is a another outlet where, you know, people can come together and, you know, get signatures. But that kind of cuts both ways. Right. I mean, the, one of the one of the things is like it's either up or down. Yes or no. There's not really maybe that room for compromise that that you might have working through other types of, of government or, or or democratic processes so what role do ballot measures play in this kind of bigger story about housing and and you know democracy more more broadly so you could dedicate an entire series you could do a limited series podcast on the insanity that is the uh, California initiative process. Um, there are obviously initiatives in a great many places, but I think California's uh, initiative system is uh, a special kind of bananas. Um, in a nutshell, in California, as in many other places, citizens can change the law on their own. They do this by gathering signatures um, for a, a ballot initiative. And if they get, and if the initiative is legal, there have been various illegal initiatives proposed over the years. Uh, but um, if it's legal and it collects sufficient signatures of registered voters, it can be placed on the ballot. And if it is voted affirmatively by the voters, it then becomes law. And the only way that law can be changed is if there is another initiative, the legislator can no longer change the, you know, cannot change the initiative once it's been uh, created by the people. So they're very, it's, not only does it make law, those laws are incredibly difficult to change once they're in place. Everyone hates the initiative process in California, and yet everyone uses the initiative process <laughs> in California. The reason people hate it is it has, it is, you can pay people to get the signatures. 
right? So you, everyone in California is used to around election time or, you know, in the months before election time, actually, uh, you, you know, you were accosted by these clipboard holding volunteers, actually not volunteers, people who are paid to collect these signatures. Anytime you, you know, get on public transit or go to the supermarket or whatever, these people set up everywhere. And they often have three or four clipboards in their hands. They're like, hey, I got uh, school funding. I got uh, legal marijuana. <laughs> I got game. You know, they, they sit there and they, get, they can sometimes get as many as $10 per signature. And, um, the, and, 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 and they jockey, you know, and, and there's this whole advanced industry and, and people pay to be the top clipboard on the, on the pile. I mean, it's this robust industry. And the problem with this industry is that, of course, if you have the money to collect signatures, who has money, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process that was put in place by governor Hiram Johnson in the progressive era, uh, as a means to counter uh, monopolistic railroads like the S&P uh, that were, you know, Standard Pacific Railroad that were, um, uh, you know, ran California at that time. These, you know, it's kind of the classic, it's it's just the California version of the robber barons and industrial, mm-hmm. that story throughout America. It's that story, right? And, and to counter them because they were so, th- there was a feeling at the time that politicians were so corrupted by them that only the people could make their own laws. And so they put in place an initiative process to end run that corrupt legislature. But now, of course, like so many things in democracy, it's been corrupted by that same force. We're not, as I sort of said at the beginning, um, we're not looking for solutions on the housing problem. We're not looking for solutions like at all. We're looking for the will to implement those solutions. And when it gets to that, it turns out like that's really hard. Mustering that will is really hard. Getting yelled at is really hard. Having people that you think are, that you want to be your allies as the Yimbis feel about anti-gentrification people, but then finding out they're actually your opponents and they can't stand you, that's hard. All this is so hard, but that's also what makes it worthwhile because anything that's, I mean, not to be like be cliche here, but anything that's easy is like either has been accomplished, right? You know, so um and 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 so this book is kind of like looking not just at policy but the, like the 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 really complicated thing of living in a unequal um uh, you know society and trying to figure out how what role democracy is going to play in pushing it in a more equitable direction and uh but but seeing that just the basic inability to relate to each other and the kind of social fraying we've had as a result of inequality and all that um, and those kind of like larger decades long forces, like that makes implementing, that makes these better policies really, really hard. Right. No, we we have said before that, you know, democracy is is hard work and, it you know, not easy, not natural. And I think you're what you've just described lays that that out for sure. Um so as, let's let's close here. So you you mentioned earlier you have been talking with people in cities all across the country that are are going through these challenges, kind of confronting these situations, trying to find the will, as you said, to to do this hard work. I mean, where where do you see things going from here? I mean, is there somewhere, some place that maybe has something in in the works that could be beneficial to others? Or, or how does this how does this movement move forward? And and do you think people will continue to find or to have that will? Two things really. One, we've seen a huge change in the conversation. And that is step one. 
everyone agreeing that something is a problem, even if they're disagreeing on the solutions, like that is a huge step in the democracy because everyone is at least now arguing over solutions, right? Um, that So the conversation changed radically from even four or five years ago. And that is a, and that I would, I would attribute a lot of that to the INBI movement. And that changing of the conversation and the sort of crystallizing of what's wrong and getting a lot of people to, to some extent, agree on that, but then argue over what the specific solutions are, that alone is a huge, huge, huge first step. I mean, think of how many things are problems that just aren't even priorities, right? I mean, this is now a problem that's a priority, and it's enough of a priority that everyone's arguing over the solutions. Okay, so that's happened. The second thing is, even though many of the largest you know, bills, like such as Scott Wiener's aforementioned uh, 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 SB 50 bill have, have died. A million things have happened. I mean, every, every city now has, I mean, at least most has some kind of accessory dwelling unit law, right. Or, 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 or is working towards an ordinance with that. Well, what does that mean? That I mean, in a single family neighborhood that would represent a doubling. If everyone did it, that would represent a doubling of the density. That's not, you know, giant apartment buildings everywhere, but that's, that's quite a, you know, twice as much is still a big number. Right. Um, so, I think that you're going to continue to see more of the same in terms of people will be, you know, talking about different kinds of measures and pushing, you know, ambitious ones at some moments and little ones at other moments. And uh, and so that's I think in that sense, that's continued. There is this thing that things begin at the local level and then they bubble up to the state and the eventually the federal government. If something becomes a big enough problem, it will eventually find its way to the federal government. And that is that is just now happening. Every single Democratic uh, presidential candidate um, had, a, had a pretty robust housing platform. Uh, that was the first time that ever happened. Many of those platforms had pretty explicit zoning components, Elizabeth uh, Warren's and, and Julian Castro's uh, notably. And so, and 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 we're very conscious of the ways in which suburban zoning and all the stuff I write about in the book are at the root of this, right? So, uh, and 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 now you have President Trump, who, who uh, kind of scaremongering people and saying Biden wants to abolish the suburbs. He's going to get rid of single-family zoning, um, right? So you, you destroy the suburbs as we know it. Uh, I mean, if you look at his tweets uh, and statements over just the past week, he's now making this single family zoning, a guy who grew up in New York City, um, a, uh, a huge issue, um, or at least is attempting to. Now, this is probably a pretty explicit play for suburban voters, um, but uh, it's, you know, it's notable that we're even talking about single family zoning at that level, since it has nothing really to do with the federal government. So... I think that, and also lay on top of this coronavirus, which um, is really going to um, enhance, you know, it's going to make housing insecurity that much worse, right? So, one way or the other, we are, I, I feel very confident saying we are on the cusp of a large national housing conversation in this country. Um, I would, I, I really believe it would have happened earlier except for that um, President Trump is such a singular character uh, and so polarizing that it's hard for this particular election to be about anything other than, you know, like him mm -hmm. and this virus. Um, so, but I do think as we kind of move into 
whoever is president as we move into next year, I think that housing is going to, I, I don't think it's going to be number one or anything like that. But I mean, I do think, I mean, it's already becoming a much bigger issue. And I think that it will become uh, a, a, a more crystallized where you'll start to have specific um you know, policy recommendations and whatnot. The extent to, and I think a lot of those policies, or at least the conversation around them, will revolve around how do we, you know, force local governments to uh, streamline some of their policies so that they're not actively fighting um, the federal government. Because, I mean, think about it this way. We passed fair housing, you know, basically uh, the, um, you know, you cannot discriminate in housing. We passed that as part of the Civil Rights Act in 1968. And yet America is more segregated than we ever are because, you know, you could you could argue, at least I do, that um, local governments have basically erected things that undid everything that the fair housing was supposed to do by making income uh, and class a proxy for race. Um, and so you go to certain suburbs and they don't, they don't have bans on um, certain type of people. They don't have racial bans or covenants like they used to, but they still look the same. Um, so um, I think that we will definitely see, I think where this is going is a national conversation towards housing. That conversation will partly revolve around money, you know, increasing things like Section 8 vouchers, maybe increasing the HUD budget, whatever. Whether or not that will happen, that will be part of the conversation. But I also think there will be part and parcel to that conversation. Whether or not it happens is another matter, but it will definitely be part of the conversation will be how do we encourage, because they can't really like dictate this, but how do you tie federal funding sources or use other yes. What incentives are there? Other kind of carrot and stick approaches to basically force local governments to change their uh, laws. And and, and the fact that every Democratic presidential candidate, again, had a pretty robust housing platform in the past, uh, you know, primary was a huge, huge, huge thing. Um, And I think um, I think it might have gotten more attention if there hadn't been. you know, the obvious kind of specter of President Trump, if if it hadn't been so like revolving around President Trump, uh, I I think I think housing would have been a much bigger issue in those debates. Well, Connor, you know, no matter uh, what happens, where things go moving forward, I I feel confident that you're going to be right there keeping us all informed about what's what's going on and all these these dynamics that are are changing. Um, We'll certainly Thank you for all the the work that you've done for helping draw the the lines, make the connection between housing and democracy, and for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, Of course. Uh, Thank you so much. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.